We all want happy, healthy families, and that quest for good health begins at birth. Sadly, many of our nation's infants have a much more difficult journey reaching their first birthday than other infants. African-American babies, for instance, are as much as two and a half times less likely to reach their first birthday than Caucasian babies. This disturbing disparity has given rise to a national forum, a forum wherein healthcare professionals, birth workers, policymakers, and family planning experts share information and ideas to combat the scourge of black infant mortality and maternal morbidity. Welcome to the GAP podcast series. Dr. Brown, it's Lindell Singleton and Pierre. How's it going? Hello, doing um, going well. Um, really excited about being a guest on your program. I understand that you're doing great things um, in terms of educating the public about important issues facing um, especially minority communities and individuals experiencing health disparities as it relates to um, maternal and child health. Right. Well, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, I, you know, our goal really is the um, our goal for the Gap Podcast series is to just use the power of, uh, of, of film, use the power of the creative arts of, and communication to just simply shine the light on issues of, of black infant mortality and maternal health and really what's happening in, um, in, in vulnerable, vulnerable communities. And I am, um, you know, I'm ecstatic that, uh, that, that you finally, I've gotten you to be a guest on the show. So I'm really excited about that. So uh, I know we've been talking about it since we first met at, uh, at Glenda's conference a few years ago. So I'm really glad that we have this opportunity this morning to talk. Absolutely. All right. Well, the first thing that I want to ask you is I was going over uh, your, um, your CV and, um, and your bio and, and, your experience and the contributions that you're making to society are just are just extraordinary. And before we get into the guts of the interview, I, I just I, I want to know, Dr. Brown, like what what motivated you to want to go into medicine and become and become a doctor? Tell tell me kind of a, a bit about the trajectory of your journey. Well, you know. Um um, some, sometimes those types of questions and, and the answers can be rather complicated, but I would have to just sum it up with, with one word, and that word is love. I love people. Um, I found out um, just, just recently, actually, that my middle name, um, Solana, means lover of mankind, and that just really perfectly describes me. I had to give my dad kudos for me giving me that middle name. I love people so much, and I want to see, I wanted to see. Um, people thrive. And I saw, even as a child, I actually saw health disparities. I experienced health disparities as an African-American child um, from a home, from a minority home with limited income and resources and access to care. And I just wanted to see um, things change for people um, like myself and people in my family. And, um, And so I was excited about going into medicine, loved the journey, um, but along the way, as you know, I um, had two daughters while I was in med school, and that kind of changed my trajectory uh, tremendously, in fact. And I went and spent uh, several years in the pharmaceutical industry, but there I gained an enormous amount of experience with pharmaceutical research and product development um, from phase one to um, phase four clinical trials. And um, so now I'm able to use that as I'm working in higher education as a college professor. And 
that's a that's really a um, that's a powerful just journey that you've just described as to you know kind of how it began for you and you experiencing as a as 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 a child your lived experience was was being exposed to the kind of healthcare disparities that are unfortunately prevalent uh, even ubiqu- ubiquitous in our nation today and you experienced it as a child and now as as an adult as a professional you know you're working to do something about it and and I see from you know from your CV I mean you're involved in in a multitude of community organizations assisting with leadership helping to just you know shine the light on 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 ways that that we can be better as a nation and I just you know I just really applaud you for the um, for the for the breadth of the work that you're doing thank you well, I wanted to just um, to get into the um, into the, the the guts of our of our time of our interview today, and the first thing, just really from your perspective, Dr. Brown, is is just really from a, from a standpoint from a frame of 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 public health, what what is what do pregnant moms need to know about COVID nineteen? What do they need to know about the virus? What are your thoughts about that? Okay. You know, um, at this point in time, um, one of the things that I would um, emphasize is just that even though we do not have a vaccine, we do not have a cure for this condition, um, we know that the information that we have is empowering, empowering, and women ought to feel empowered about being able to protect themselves um, and their children and uh, pregnant mothers being able to protect their unborn child from this condition. Um, first of all, although we don't have information, some published scientific reports about susceptibility of, uh, among pregnant women to COVID-19, we do know that pregnant women experience various immunologic and physiological changes that could impact their susceptibility, susceptibility to infections like COVID-19. Um, there's also concern that pregnant women may be at risk for severe illness, morbidity, mortality, um, compared to the general population. This is based on observations of cases where pregnant women were infected with other related coronavirus infections. So not this one in particular, but there are other um, viruses like the SARS-CoV of the Middle East and MERS-CoV. Um, and so these are other coronavirus-type infections, as well as influenza that have been out there. We know that women who are pregnant have particular, uh, particularly um, significant challenges overcoming that condition. Now, when you look at um, women who are nursing mothers, there's another um, interesting thing, um, and even in that transition. So um, um, first off, the woman who is pregnant, um, we, there was... There has been some concern about transmission, but up until this time, there have been no cases where SARS-CoV-2, which is the name of the actual virus, um, there have been no cases, um, no published cases, cases I should say, where it was transmitted to the infant. In fact, um, we found that there was no SARS-CoV-2 virus in amniotic fluid. And so that, those are very promising um, things to know. Also, women who are nursing, going back to that, women who are nursing, we know that um, we have not found SARS-CoV-2 in um, breast milk. However, we have found antibodies, at least one type of antibody 
to the virus. So we already knew that women who nurse their children, uh, nurse their infants, are going to confer some um, immunity, if you will. We call that passive immunity in the scientific community. And certainly we know that um, that's some evidence that that's the case. And that is also a very um, optimistic um, thing to know for, uh, for nursing mothers and their infants. You know, that's a, um, that that's not surprising to me, uh, the part about the passive immunity and, and, and antibody being passed along in, in mother's milk. And I'll, I'll tell you why, why that is. On, um, on an earlier episode of the Gap podcast series, we had a uh, we had someone on from the mother, the Mother's Milk Bank of North Texas, and that's a, a group that that uh, that that gets uh, lactating moms to you know to donate breast milk, and then they take it through you know some sort of a, a process to make you know make sure that it's it's stable and safe and such, and they make that they make that milk available to um, to 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 NICUs around uh, around the nation. And um, and one of the things that fell that fell out of that ep- episode, Doctor Brown, is that we learned about the extraordinary, extraordinarily powerful healing components that are in mother's milk, and and the whole you know, one of the, the 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 arcs that we that we dealt with on the show was you know how do we get more more black women particularly to to breastfeed because statistically black women are breastfeeding at a at a lower rate than you know the women of other ethnic groups and one of the things that that we talked about on the show uh, Amanda Alvarez is the person that was uh, from Mother's Milk Bank of Texas who was on the show one of the things we talked about is that they're just these they're these powerful antibodies and 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 immune Im- immunities that breast milk confers so you know, I'm just I'm glad that you that you that you mentioned that um, that that's really important. Now, just for um, for our listeners that 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 may not really uh, have a, an understanding of maybe the difference between between a virus and a bacteria and kind of how they interact or influence the body differently. Would you just, and starting with me, like talk to me like I'm a second grader, kind of explain kind of the difference between kind of a viral infection and a bacterial infection in the body? That is an excellent question. Um, I love um, the course microbiology um, in med school, undergrad, because um, it literally revealed so many things, this new world, if you will, of germs that I really knew and I didn't know how much um, I didn't know uh, about. I um, uh, one of the things that is most prominent that we want to understand that bacteria and viruses are very different. In fact, viruses are not considered living organisms, and I'll tell you why. Um, whereas bacteria can live independently, they may have a what we call a symbiotic relationship where they um, they have a host that they like to associate with and draw from. But literally, viruses must inhabit; they must live inside of hosts. Cell. That host cell can be um, an animal or a living, another living organism, like a mosquito in the case of malaria, um, or in our case with SARS-CoV-2, um, the human body, um, human cells. And um, viral cells do, do not have the capacity to replicate on their own. So what they do is they hijack host 
cellular machinery to replicate. And that's where the problem is. Um, if you look at antivirals and antibacterials, for example, um, some um, some um, drugs um, and some solutions or products are going to be what we call bacteriostatic, for example, and they will stop the growth, for example, of a bacteria, but others are bactericidal, and they will actually kill the bacteria. Well, in the case of viruses, um, the only way to kill them is actually to kill the actual human cell that it inhabits. So it's, it's essential that host immunity is in place to be able to deal with that because it's our immune systems that are able to recognize when cells are infected with a virus. They send out a signal. Literally, uh, we use uh, various types of proteins in our bodies for uh, doing all sorts of things. But we have protein signals that we send out and that we can exhibit on cells that are infected. And then um, um, different um, uh, proteins and different molecules in our immune system and particularly white blood cells can come along and deal with those infected cells and eradicate the infection because the goal, again, is to stop the replication of the virus. If the virus cannot replicate, then it's no longer a problem. So I, I think I may have gone a little bit into too much detail. No, I get excited no, you, talking about No, you didn't. You did not. Continue, please. This is perfect. <laughs> so um, it's exciting to um, the, the the field of virology itself is really exciting because and um, the common common layperson knows that influenza itself changes um, and it does so because viruses viruses are able to pick up genetic information from other organisms they can pick up genetic information from um, some bacteria, and they can even pick up the genetic information of the host cell that they live in, whether it's a human cell or an animal cell. And that's one of the concerns with SARS-CoV-2. There's a recent study that showed that there um, that um, there was one particular animal um, that is um, um, I don't, I'm not sure if it's endangered, but it's illegal to uh, trans, uh, to uh, buy and sell this uh, particular animal in um, Eastern Asia, and um, they believe that it that um, this and this particular species, because uh, the virus has at least 90% of the genome, it's of its genome um, directly related to that particular animal, they think that it was a source, the animal was a source. And the name escapes me at this time. But, um, yeah, so, so it's really interesting how the viruses are able to um, literally hijack host cells or the cells of um, the organism they're infecting and take some of their DNA and use their host machine, uh, host cell machinery to replicate and to thrive. And therefore, we must, we must um, um, put up a good fight. And the only way to do that is to make our immune systems healthy. And, and, and I think that's one of the things that, um, that is uh, being emphasized now. Since we don't have a vaccine and we don't have... Um, um, an antiviral that we know effectively eliminates or, or, or um, deals with this condition, then we know that we need to build host defense mechanisms. And the best way to do that um, is to make sure that we're eating a healthy diet with lots of um, different colored fruits and vegetables, plenty of protein. Um, if you're going to create antibodies, well, let me tell you, antibodies are made of protein. So guess what? I'm a pescatarian. That means I don't eat red meat and uh, poultry anymore. I eat, uh, um, I eat fish and seafood and um, mainly a veg vegetable diet. But I need to make sure. We need to make sure that we get plenty of protein because your body depends on the capacity to um, make proteins in order to 
fight things like SARS-CoV-2. You also want to get adequate sleep. You want to stay out of stressful situations that could um, um, make physiological changes in your body that could hinder your immune system's capacity to fight. And then also, um, I said rest, sleep, um, sleep hygiene, and yeah, those are the main things, rest, sleep hygiene, and adequate diet. We're about to go to commercial, and when we come back, we'll have more with the amazing Jasmine Farish. You're listening to The Gap Podcast Series. This is Nikia Lawson, and in today's segment of Let's Doula This on The Gap Podcast Series, we're going to be talking about what is a doula. The idea around doula care stems from the concept of having a professional support person, a part of the birth experience with the family before, during, and after the actual birth of the baby. So doulas provide non-clinical, emotional, educational, and physical comfort so that the family has a well-rounded approach to how they want to embrace their birth experience. The doula's role and responsibility is to help facilitate and help navigate the experience so that the family is satisfied by the birth outcome. So we're not there to necessarily um, make an outcome happen or to guarantee a specific type of birth experience, but really to help the family be prepared through education, through information, as well as providing some actual physical comfort. So when a family decides that they want to have a doula for their birth experience, they literally will interview a professional. That professional will sit down with them, go over a plan for their birth experience, and then help them navigate that depending on who they choose as their clinical provider. So the difference between the midwife and the doula is that the midwife is actually the clinician. The midwife has the skills and the capacity to provide clinical support for the family so that they can welcome their baby very healthy and have a positive birth outcome. That's the ultimate goal when it comes to that clinical care that the family is receiving from the midwife. With the doula, it's more emotional support, there's more educational support, and then there is some physical comfort measures. So doulas have gone to learn very specific skills through training, through reading, through interaction, through engagement, through networking within their communities to obtain skills to work and navigate with the family together in tandem a very specific birth goal that the family decides. So the doula doesn't go in and make decisions, nor does the doula go in and speak on behalf of the family. The family guides the journey. The doula helps navigate to facilitate a very calm and embrace a beautiful birth experience. So understanding the role of the doula helps us all understand how positive these birth outcomes can be. So it's so exciting to share with you all what a doula is and what a doula does so that you know when you're getting ready to hire a doula, what questions you can be asking, how you can engage with them, and what that's going to look like for your birth experience. Just want to let you know that in the doula spirit, doulas make a difference. This is Nakia Lawson on Let's Doula This on the Gap podcast series. talk about about terms uh, medical terms and I'm assuming they're either medical terms or 
public health terms, I'll let you be the arbiter of that, is that people with comorbidities or people with underlying health issues tend to have worse outcomes if they end up in a relationship with the COVID-19 virus. Would you just, from your perspective, just just explain that kind of, explain that to, you know, to me and to our listeners, you know, like we're all second graders. What does that really mean as a practical matter? Sure. Lately, I've been making a parallel to how pregnancy is a, we often hear pregnancy is a stress test on, of the body. You know, it's very, um, if you've had some bad habits or if you're diabetic, it's going to exacerbate some things and you have to, re, you know, readjust. So same thing with COVID, like if you have diabetes and then you get, you know, this virus, it makes it, it, it throws off your equilibrium and makes your body work even harder. And it, it's a challenge. Like you have to um, take even more care of yourself because of that. Miss Wilder, uh, first of all, how are you, how are you doing today amidst all the craziness that's going on in the world? Uh, well, I'm good, holding up, mm. you know, as well as expected in the, during this time. Right. Well, I understand. I, um, you know, we had uh, Dr. Brown uh, on the on the show a couple of months back, and um, and then given everything going on with COVID nineteen, we we reached back out to her, and she, uh, of course, said that you, she felt you were, um, you know, you were much more. Um, it would just be better that for this episode that we talk to you. So thank you very much for agreeing, agreeing to be on our, agreeing to be on our show. The, uh, the first question I want to ask you is this is, is, and I see that you're the program uh, director, program manager for, uh, for healthy start. So first just yeah. really give, give us, um, give us our, give our listeners really a flavor for the mission and purpose of healthy start. Really? What, what are you guys about? What do you do? Okay, so Healthy Start is a federally funded program under the Maternal and Child Health Bureau, part of the government, and we are a home visitation program. So all of our work is done in the home, uh, in a home setting with our clients, and we service women who are either pregnant or parenting a child under the age of 18 months, and we also serve women who are in what we call a preconception uh phase of their life they don't have any children but either desire to have children or don't desire to have children and so we work with women across those lifespans and uh, we have social workers and community health workers on our team we do different assessments with our families so we um, we do psychosocial analysis we uh, assessments we do uh, depression screening safe sleep assessments and we try to remove any barriers that our clients may have, whether it's transportation to the doctor's appointment, transportation to social service agency, uh, any of medical appointments for the children, anything like that. We provide transportation, and we also provide uh, resources for behavioral health and mental health services as well. And so our ultimate goal is that we will reduce infant and maternal mortality here in Tarrant County. And so particularly among our African-American uh, women. So, Misty, about uh, about how many clients do you actually serve annually? So we serve uh, almost 600 clients annually. 
uh, the first thing I want to ask you is, is kind of given the, given kind of the state, the current condition of, uh, of our world, of our state, of our county, what are, what are a couple of, a couple of strategies that, that you folks really recommend that pregnant moms kind of employ to protect themselves in their, in their infants or their, or their small children during these time? What, what are your, what are your recommendations for pregnant moms now? I mean, what we're telling our clients is that uh, to limit uh, contact and interaction with uh, people in the physical sense, like still be sociable with them, maybe through FaceTime, uh, Zoom, and those so that you can have that social part of it. But the physical part, we're asking them not to have as like as much company as um, for people that would not normally be in their home. Some of that can be difficult because some of our clients do stay with uh, other people in their home more than like the normal three or four people. So when we try to talk to them about that, making sure that they have sanitizer, make sure they're washing their hands. If they do have to go out, we are saying, you know, wear a mask and uh, limit going out and limit who you come in contact with. Uh, Try to keep it to as much as going to like those essential places, like going to your Healthcare provider, or if there's, if you need to go to a social service agency for something, uh, go there and then come back home and then just make sure that you sanitize, make sure that you keep your child uh, the same way, not having your child, you know, with uh, a variety of people during this time right now because you really just don't know. Because people can say, I don't have it, but they haven't been tested, so they really don't know. So trying to minimize it that in that aspect. Ms. Wilder, I would like to thank you for um, for your time, for your passion, for your depth of knowledge, and most importantly for the for the work that you do. You are listening to our amazing guest today, Misty Wilder, who is the program manager of the Healthy Start program at UNT Health Sciences in Fort Worth, Texas. You're listening to the Gap Podcast series. Thank you. Thank you for listening. The Gap Podcast Series is produced by Limeville Entertainment in association with Sagasse Media Group. Also, be sure to visit us online at 365plusone.org. That's 365plusone.org.